Hey, Peak Pals, at the end of today's episode, we've got an exclusive interview with Sarah Wilkinson, the CEO of Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill is transforming the legacy Canadian medical billing space and is on the forefront of healthcare innovation in this country. In our conversation, we're chatting with Sarah about everything Dr. Bill, health tech, and how RBCX is powering their exciting portfolio of companies. I don't want to spoil too much, so make sure to stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear our interview with Sarah Wilkinson, CEO of Dr. Bill. I'm Brett Chang. And I am Jay Rosenthal, and this is your Peak Daily for TGIF, August 18th, where we cover the biggest stories in Canadian and global business, finance, and tech, all in less than seven minutes. Okay, so move over Lisbon, Peak Pals. The top destination for remote workers is now Dubai, at least according to new research. With heavy weddings given to factors like how low taxes, convenient air travel, and warm climates, let's just say we understand why Canada was left off of the list. Jay, would you ever consider moving to Dubai remote working from there? I think when you say warm climates, that's a little too warm for me. Yeah. And I don't particularly love warm climates, so I'm not moving to Dubai, although it does look like a lot of fun. Work notwithstanding, it does look like fun. You? Are you heading there now? No, I am not, because one thing that wasn't mentioned in the weightings is the cost of living. And I don't think Dubai is super expensive. I don't think it's super cheap either. And so also, I've never been to Dubai, but I have this like, I imagine it to be very much like a Middle Eastern Vegas, which doesn't sound like a place I'd love to spend an extended period of time. Yeah, I don't like Vegas and it's hot too, and I'm not moving there. So I guess we're not moving to Dubai either, but I can understand why some people might if they're digital nomads. But aside from the exodus away from here to Dubai, what do we have for Peak Pals today? For our first story, cities are feeling the pinch. For our second story, gamifying sobriety shows promise. And for our last story, one year of subsidy wars. For our first story, someone called Ramit Sethi from Netflix, How to Get Rich, because Canadian cities need financial rescuing. Brett, what's the state of our city's finances? So faced with $46.5 billion in budget pressures over the next decade, Toronto is asking the province to approve a new city sales tax to drum up more revenue. Now to catch you up, it started with the city officials trying to dial back the cost of Canada Day festivities. Now they're escalating efforts to tackle what they say is a quote-unquote unprecedented financial crisis. If the province doesn't give its permission or offer a financial lifeline itself, the city is also looking into raising land transfer taxes, vacant home taxes, and parking fees. It's happening because with the exception of Calgary, Canada's major cities are super duper broke. Just how broke, Brett? Well, we're talking collective bargaining shortfalls totaling well over $1.6 billion with a B dollars. Toronto by far has the largest shortfall of nearly $1 billion, followed by Vancouver's $500 million and Montreal's $80 million. Winnipeg, there's $70 million short and Ottawa's only, hey, it sounds like a real deal, $12 million short. Kudos to our friends in Ottawa. Cities are pretty limited, actually, when it comes to ways they can generate new revenue between budget cuts, tax hikes, and higher fees for services like transit or pools. And it matters because if Ontario greenlights a Toronto-specific sales tax, it could pave the way for other struggling cities, including Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, and Winnipeg, to follow suit. Now to zoom out, shrinking municipal funds could force Toronto to turn to other drastic measures, from pausing transit projects to cutting back plans to bolster long-term health care. For our second story, looking to cut back on drinking, well, there is now an app for that. I'm intrigued. Tell me more, Jay. Well, hold on. I'm just downloading it now. (laughs) Actually, Swiss researchers who designed a smartphone app aimed at developing healthier drinking habits among students found that over 12 months, students with a history of unhealthy alcohol use 
drank 10% less per week on average while using the app. The app gamifies sobriety by having students log their drinks and giving personalized feedback, like telling them how much they drank compared to other people their age. And it matters because this research suggests that habit tracking apps could help people looking to drink less to actually, you know, drink less. A study from last year came to similar conclusions. People, particularly the youngins, Jay, are increasingly looking to cool it with the drinks. With a recent Ipsos poll finding that 36% of Canadian drinkers aged between 18 and 34 felt like they drank too much, this has resulted in an emerging sober curious industry that includes drink tracking apps, celeb-backed mocktails, boozeless bars, and sobriety influencers. I Am Sober, one of the most popular sobriety apps, saw about 300,000 downloads last month alone, according to mobile analytics firm Sensor Tower. Beer Canada estimates that sales volumes of non-alcoholic beer are growing between 22 to 25%, a much faster rate than most alcohol categories. The bottom line is this. The trend to drink less is music to health officials' ears. Health Canada's updated drinking guidelines advise a max of only two drinks a week, but not a night, a week, while the World Health Organization estimates alcohol abuse causes 3 million deaths annually. For our third and final story, it's been about a year since a pair of U.S. laws triggered a flood of incentives for investments in clean energy production and semiconductor manufacturing. Brett, let's look back on the irrevocable change they've wrought. Since their inception, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, have stoked a global subsidy war with the U.S., Canada, and Germany all throwing billions of companies to accelerate investments in key industries. Last week, Germany convinced chipmaker TSMC to build a factory in their country by reportedly offering 5 billion euro. In June, the country offered Intel 10 billion euro to build one as well. And it matters because per the Wall Street Journal, this quote-unquote new world order has created winners and losers, with smaller economies posed to fall behind as they fail to compete for investment with the U.S. The list of losers could come to include, well, Canada. I don't like being a loser in Canada, right? A recent report found the U.S. can offer larger and more reliable subsidies in sectors like battery materials, hydrogen production, and carbon capture. The bottom line is, and for the handful of countries that can keep up, some research has found that policies that heavily subsidize manufacturing could actually do more economic harm than good. Peak Pals, thanks for making us the most listened to business news podcast in Canada. If you got a second, why not follow this podcast on your app of choice and leave us a review this weekend. And if you want more Peak, make sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter at readthepeak.com. Thank you, Brett, and have a safe and healthy weekend, everybody. Hey, Peak Pals, thanks for tuning into today's Peak Daily. As we mentioned at the start of today's episode, we've got a very special interview with Sarah Wilkinson, the CEO of Dr. Bill. I had a great conversation about how Dr. Bill is disrupting the stale medical billing space, innovation in healthcare at large, and how RBCX is powering Dr. Bill and their exciting portfolio of businesses. It was an absolute pleasure having Sarah on, and I just found this whole interview super interesting. I'm really excited for you to hear this, and so let's just get right into it. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us on the Peak Daily today. Hey, Brett, thanks so much for having me. So look, I, I just want to jump into it because I'm super interested to hear more about Dr. Bill. Let's just start off with what is Dr. Bill and what challenges does it solve for physicians? Yeah, so Dr. Bill is a medical billing platform for physicians. So we get physicians paid. So what we do is, is that we help physicians make their medical billing effortless so that they feel confident about what it is that they're actually getting paid. So for a bit of extra context, because I, like many Canadians, kind of lived in blissful ignorance as to how physicians actually get paid. 
It's not as simple as you might think. So physicians don't get a paycheck, you know, every two weeks or something like that. To envision medical billing, it's like, I need you to take all the drama of like tax time and all like the misery of like government forms and then add that in with like a small business owner trying to collect like a whole bunch of like receipts in like a shoebox. So how medical billing works is that for every single piece of care that a physician provides to a Canadian, they have to submit a piece of paperwork to the government detailing what it is that they did, how long they did it, and how much they could actually get paid. It's like if you had to submit a whole bunch of paperwork to HR every week to say, I did these meetings, please give me my salary for it. What's difficult is that, you know, one, government systems are old and outdated and difficult to work with. And the second thing is that it's not even as if, you know, if the physician, you know, asked for, let's say, $100, the government that gives them $100, what's much more likely to happen is that the physician will actually get rejected or only get a partial payment. And then they have to go through a whole appeals process. So what Dr. Bill does is we go end to end. So we work from like the earliest stages, either whether it's from a day sheet, an EMR, um, a telemedicine consult. We take in that information. We help a physician create the claim. We interface with the government on behalf of the physician. We submit all those claims. We do all the back and forth with the government around approvals, rejections, resubmissions. And then we do all of the appeals process for physician as well. So we are end to end payroll for a physician. So we do this for about 10,000 of Canada's 90,000 physicians. And we're on track to process about one and a half billion dollars of physician income this year. Wow, that's incredible. And I think a lot of listeners will be particularly interested to hear about the actual process pre-doctor bill of yeah. what doctors had to do to get paid. I guess just to take a step back, it'd be interesting to hear more about just healthcare technology at large and how it's evolving in the short and long term. Yeah. So that's a really great point because medical billing is, I think, a really good sort of microcosm of pieces of the healthcare system that have let's say, been underinvested in, right? Other pieces of the economy or other industries have moved forward and we've got this archaic thing like medical billing hanging around. So from a short-term perspective, there's a couple things I'm seeing from the healthcare technology side. The first thing is what I would call bringing healthcare technology up to hygiene standard, right? So healthcare in Canada, as we've all seen, right, like there's some like outdated pieces of it, right? I mean, Dr. We've got fax machines, for example, right? Because there are pieces of the healthcare system that Mm. only take fax like to this day. So I know, which is like quite a thing to like acknowledge in and of itself. But like, yeah, we do. We have fax. We're a startup with fax machines because there's no alternative to it. So number one is that, you know, COVID was particularly helpful for this in that a lot of organizations looked around and went, oh God, like we are very behind the eight ball compared to what we would also call legacy industries like banking, for example, or like other sort of more stagnant industries, healthcare is even further behind in a lot of different ways. So from a short term perspective, we're seeing a lot of investments to try and bring healthcare up to what we would call sort of like the hygiene standard. Like, no, we shouldn't have to submit paper forms in triplicate. That's just like baseline standard. Or like number two, we should probably find a way to get rid of this fax machine and replace it with God forbid, an API. I'll even take an email. Can we just send it via email, right? So there's a lot of work kind of in the short term to bring us sort of like up to speed. And what I'm really excited about is that we're seeing a lot of folks kind of like leapfrog with new technologies to sort of like get us there. So, you know, there's a whole proliferation of, you know, AI startups that are coming out over the next little while that really try to simplify this. So I would equate it to, so I, I have a payments background and I would equate it to like a lot of the payments work that we saw 
actually like in Africa and in Kenya and in Nigeria about like five years ago. But a place like Canada has full of, you know, credit card transactions, right? Like we're going to like chip and pin. Five years ago, a place like Nigeria did not have chip and pin in any way. And they jumped over chip and pin altogether and they went straight to like mobile transactions on the phone, right? Like they were ahead of the rest of North America when it came to like mobile phone transactions. Mm. And my hope is that kind of leads into like the long term thing is that we see some of this leapfrogging on like the long term side, right? So instead of forcing the healthcare industry through slow moving change from, you know, like fax machine to email to API, what if we can jump right ahead and try and make this as like effortless as possible? The big thing that we're really hoping for, and I'll say this is, this is where Dr. Ville comes into this, is that we're really hoping to see a world in which we just let physicians be physicians, right? Like healthcare is one of those few industries in which we ask, you know, physicians to take on roles of bookkeeper and scribe and therapist and also like healer of people. And, you know, taking like something like Dr. Bill, we're here to try and take away some of those extra labels for physicians. And we're really hoping that a lot of the some of the longer term innovation in healthcare helps us get there, too. I think that's a really interesting analog that you make between the leapfrogging hmm. in certain industries when it comes to technology and where healthcare is. You know, I even heard about some electric vehicle companies that are looking at it where they go, yeah, we don't have the hundred years of research into the internal combustion engine that other big manufacturers might have. Yeah. But everyone's kind of starting from scratch when it comes to electric engines and how they function, the technology exactly. behind them. So it's a very interesting place to be. If we take a closer look at Dr. Bill, though, I know you mentioned that you have these fax machines to interact with parts of the government that just don't operate digitally. Yep. What else differentiates Dr. Bill from other existing medical billing solutions? Yeah. So what I would say is that there are two types of like medical billing providers in the market. One, what I would call like legacy, and then some that are more modern, like Dr. Bill. So on the legacy side, and this is how medical billing has been done in this country for at least 15, 60 years. And so it's what we would call a mailbag system. So you've got a physician, they see a bunch of patients, they've got little post-it notes and stuff like that, and they, they jot it down and they physically mail it to like an agent that they've probably never met before in their lives. And their agent just handles all of it for them. And, you know, obviously the pros of this is that, you know, a physician never has to look at it again. They're like, they wipe their hands of it. They're like, it's all good. And the con is that it's a black box, right? Like you don't know if something's gone wrong. Like lots of things can happen in the system. You don't have any visibility. Something like a, a dashboard is just way beyond the capabilities of some of these legacy systems. And a lot of these billing agents are actually spouses of physicians. So that's actually how Dr. Bill actually got mm -hmm. founded originally. Dr. Bill was actually founded at the kitchen table by the spouse of a internal medicine specialist here in BC. The physician, she was bringing home just like a shoebox of receipts and her husband was like, there has to be better way. And so it originally started as an Excel sheet and then from an Excel sheet, it kind of went, it got more modern. But yeah, that's, that's like how existing sort of billing agencies work. And where Dr. Bill is different, obviously, is that we are modern, let's say, right? So like we provide that sort of visibility. We have rules engines, right? Like so instead of relying on an individual agent to like know the ins and outs of over literally over like 700 pages of codes per province that could be billed for an individual appointment, we actually have rules engines that come in and actually take a look at that. And we can help physicians, you know, if they're about to like leave money on the table, right, we can suggest more codes for them that they might have forgotten. And the second thing is that we also prevent errors before they occur, right? We can say, hey, like you've submitted two claims on the same date or you definitely can't bill XGOA at the same time as XG10. Like you should go take a look at that. So we've got that sort of like modern software piece of it, which is really helpful for physicians. 
The second piece, like against our sort of like more modern folks who are doing sort of like medical billing today, is that there's a real sort of like baseline of modernization, right? So everyone has, so there's only about like five or six of us in the country who do, let's call it, who do modern medical billing, let's say. So like with apps, with web apps, et cetera. And everyone can turn, you know, the big government rules book into a rules engine, right? You, you don't need AI or anything like that, right? You don't need to bring in machine learning for this. It's, it's rules, right? You can do that. What sets Dr. Bill apart is our commitment to service. So I really, I really think that like Dr. Bill's secret sauce is like service plus software. That's really where we come in. We bring the best like rules engines and software and security that we possibly can bring. And we marry it with a really, really deep focus on the customer. So in addition to all of our software, we also have a team of folks here at Dr. Bill who have their ex-government or they've worked in billing agencies for like 20 plus years. These are the folks with the connections, with the know-how. It's like the difference between like, you know, doing taxes yourself on something like TurboTax and hiring an accountant. We have the accountants. We have the experts who can take a look at something and say, hey, I see what's going on in your anesthesiology codes. We should definitely do something about that. And that's because like our incentives are aligned with a physician, right? Like our goal is to make sure that a physician is paid fairly and that they're not leaving any money on the table because that's how we get paid too. And so by aligning those incentives, we really ensure that we add that transparency for physicians. We're always trying to bring money back for the physicians and really trying to make sure that they're just getting paid fairly. And the final piece that makes Dr. Bill really different is that we are owned and we are a wholly owned subsidiary of the Royal Bank of Canada. So, you know, there's lots of startups out there in the wild who like to say that they have like bank grade security. But we can actually say like hand on heart, we literally have bank grade security and privacy policies. So we are subject to the same processes, policies. We're behind the same firewalls. We're built in the same location as the rest of Canadian banking locations, right? Like we're just as secure. And that really gives a lot of our partners, both as individual physicians, but also we do a lot of work with like hospital departments or hospitals themselves. It gives them a lot of comfort to know that this is the type of protection and the type of um, trust that we're putting in the healthcare data that physicians are giving us. You know, you mentioned at the end there, and I want to dig into this a mm -hmm. bit more, the role that RBCX plays mm -hmm. in terms of the security and data privacy side. How else does RBCX power Dr. Bill's business or other businesses of a similar scale? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that we've seen, I'll just talk about Dr. Bill for a second. Like we've seen Dr. Bill mm -hmm. grow and go through a real sort of like identity shift ever since coming on with like RBCX. So when we first acquired Dr. Bill, so I was on the deal team actually from the bank that acquired Dr. Bill. The company was about maybe like 10, 10-ish, 15 staff, sub a million in rev, very much like sort of like a seed stage sort of like startup. It was very much in what I would call like hand-to-hand -hand combat style, which I'm sure many startup founders will resonate with, right? Like every single customer you're just, you're driving down for that individual customer they say they want X features, go to the devs and you're like, build this feature so we can sign this contract. Like, let's go. Just like you're just fighting and clawing your way like customer by customer. And that's amazing because that's what it takes to go from zero to one, right? Like that's really the definition of zero to one. It's that grit. It's that perseverance. It's amazing. But the systems and like, like that you have in place to service, you know, like that to have 15 staff to service a couple hundred customers cannot by definition be the same processes and systems that you use to serve 10,000 customers or that you use to deal with a company of like you know, almost like 200 staff. It just it doesn't work that way. And that's where RBCX has been very helpful in providing that sort of scale up perspective. So 
Dr. Bill, we're no longer a startup. We're now a scale-up, right? Like, so we, like many other younger companies, had to go through that sort of identity shift where we originally started our team with a lot of zero to one people. And we've had to switch out a lot of people to like one to 10 people because it is, it's a, it's a different skill set. And where RBCX has been very helpful has been in A, providing some of that insight, right? As to what does one to 10 look like? Two, providing a lot of that direct guidance, right? So, you know, marketing at a zero to one startup is very different than marketing at like a one to 10 startup, right? Different budgets, different techniques, different channels, et cetera. Having that expertise has been really helpful for the team. And overall, it's just kind of like a lot of zero to one people are really good at zero to one and they continue to work in like zero to one places and they've never necessarily seen what a company at true scale looks like. And, you know, say what you will about the bank, right? Obviously, there are parts, it's not as fast as startups, obviously, but the bank knows how to scale. Like the bank breathes money. Like it just, it, it looks at something and it can set up a process for it. And so having that expertise and bringing that in for folks has been very, very helpful. So whether that's on, quote, more like traditional pieces like legal, privacy, risk management, but also very helpful on growth side of things, too, which you wouldn't always anticipate. Right. So, for example, like we do a lot of work with hospital departments and RBC, by function of being one of the largest you know, companies in the country, has a lot of connections at different hospital boards, for example, right? And so it's given us access to a new network that we didn't necessarily have before acquisition either. And so overall, like the support of what RBCX gives us is that like, it's a couple of things. One is it gives us that sort of expertise. It gives us bodies. We literally couldn't afford to hire ourselves in market if we wanted to. And the third thing, well, to say like the funding part out loud is that, you know, in a world in which VC funding is drying up, right, like our budgets come from the bank. And so we get to operate from a place of a bit more privilege where we get to make certain choices where we know that our funding is secure. Wow. Yeah. You know, when you put it that way, there's definitely a number of advantages. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I thought about the scale component of it. Mm -hmm. I thought that makes a lot of sense because you have all these customers that you can then acquire mm -hmm. into Dr. Bill. But when you add that on with the privacy and the security component, with just the operational know-how about how to get things from one to yeah. N, it's just transformational for the whole business. It's been such a fascinating discussion talking to you, Sarah. I've learned a lot about not just Dr. Bill and the origin story of Dr. Bill and how it's disrupting medical billing, but just in terms of the healthcare industry and innovation in it, and also how RBCX is playing a role in all of that. I've really enjoyed this. So thank you so much for taking the time today. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. No, of course. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.